Hi everyone, this is Steve Carroll, and welcome back to the EMBASIC Podcast. This episode is part two of Hemoc Emergencies, and we'll be focusing on the hematology issues for this podcast. Today we'll talk about a general approach to anemia, hemophilias, as well as the infamous purpuros, ITP and TTP. Even though sickle cell disease is a hematologic issue we frequently see in the emergency department, we won't be talking about that today because that topic deserves its own episode. As always, this podcast doesn't represent the views of Princeton Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, and the Shawshank EM Residency Program. Let's talk first about anemia. You will see many patients in the ED with varying degrees of anemia, so it's important to have a good approach to this issue. Anemia is defined as a reduced volume of red blood cells, and it can be either acute or chronic. Acute anemia in the ED is usually caused by some sort of bleeding issue, while chronic anemia can be seen with chronic diseases such as renal failure or be the result of a slow blood loss over a long period of time. In general, anemia is defined as a hemoglobin of less than 14 in males and less than 12 in females, but this number is highly dependent on age and the particular lab machine used to run the specimen. The patient with anemia who is not obviously bleeding from somewhere usually presents the ED in one of two ways. Patients may be sent in from a doctor's office due to critical anemia that is found on now patient CBC, or the patient is experiencing symptoms of anemia. Mild anemia may also be found in the routine workup of other issues that present to the ED where a CBC is performed. In these patients, you may see vital sign abnormalities such as tachycardia or hypotension, but this is usually the sign of a patient with an active and severe bleeding issue. When you're doing a history on these patients, ask about symptoms such as weakness, fatigue, dipsing on exertion, or chest pain. Keep in mind that if the patient is younger and the anemia has taken a long time to develop, the patient may be relatively asymptomatic until they reach a hemoglobin of 5 or 6, which is quite low. So don't be surprised if the patient's only complaint is, my doctor told me to come to the emergency department. However, most patients report some sort of symptoms at a hemoglobin of about 7. Make sure to ask about any possible sources of blood loss, such as blood in the stool or blood in the urine, and ask any females about any history of heavy menstrual periods. Also ask about any recent surgeries or GI procedures that could put the patient at risk for internal bleeding. Ask about any history of renal disease, as well as any history of transfusions in the past. Finally, take a complete history, asking about other medical problems, medications, allergies, and surgeries in the past. Most patients with mild anemia may not have any specific physical exam findings. Those with more severe anemia may have skin or mucosal pallor and may have jaundice if they are having hemolytic anemia. A common finding with severe anemia is pallor of the conjunctiva, so look there first when looking for pallor. Patients with severe anemia may also have a significant flow murmur on cardiac exam. When you are looking at the CBC of a patient with anemia, the next most important value besides the hemoglobin is the mean corpuscular volume, or MCV. This will help us put the patient into one of three broad categories of anemia, microcytic, normocytic, and macrocytic. Microcytic, or low MCV, is most commonly caused by iron deficiency anemia or anemia of chronic disease. Normocytic, or normal MCV, is usually anemia of chronic disease or anemia of renal failure, but some patients with iron deficiency can also have a normal MCV. Macrocytic anemia can be caused by nutritional deficiencies such as B12 or folate deficiency, alcoholism, liver disease, or hypothyroidism. Once you put the patient into one of these three broad categories, it can help you figure out what the patient may need in regards to further workup and treatment. 
This is a vast simplification of classifying anemias, but it's really the only one we need to know in the ED. All the other algorithms out there that have you look at the patient's RDW and retic count to differentiate these patients with weird autoimmune diseases or thalassemias are ones that you can look up if needed. Let's talk first about those patients who have incidental anemia discovered on a workup for some other condition. We don't usually have to figure out the exact cause of the patient's anemia, but they will need appropriate follow-up. Let's say that you have an adult patient with abdominal pain who got a CBC as part of their standard workup for abdominal pain. This workup could be for any condition where you would consider getting a CBC, but let's use abdominal pain as an example. Let's say you find a hemoglobin of 11 in an otherwise healthy 50-year-old male. You have no other CBCs to compare it to, and the patient can't recall being told that he has been anemic in the past. You ask about any of the usual sources of bleeding, such as blood in the stool, and the patient denies having any history concerning for sources of bleeding. The patient denies any symptoms concerning for symptomatic anemia, and they aren't on any medications that would cause bleeding, such as warfarin, aspirin, or NSAIDs. The patient's ED workup is negative and you're planning on discharging the patient. That's fine, however, you need to make sure that the patient understands that they need to follow up with their primary care doctor for their anemia. Depending on the patient's age and sex, they may need further testing. In your older patients, new anemia is colon cancer until proven otherwise, so they may need referral for a colonoscopy in the right situation. Younger females who are having heavy periods may need to be started on iron therapy. For these patients, put a diagnosis of anemia on their chart and on their discharge forms and tell the patient that they will need to follow up with a primary care doctor to arrange further testing if needed. To help expedite this follow-up, print out the patient's lab work for them and tell them to bring it to their primary care doctor's office when they have an appointment. This is an important step not only to protect yourself from liability, but also to keep the patient safe. You don't need to start a huge workup in the ED with iron panels, but you also don't want a colon cancer to go undiagnosed for years and cause the patient to have a bad outcome. If you have a young female patient with microcytic anemia with heavy periods, you may consider starting the patient on iron if they don't have good access to primary care or an OBGYN. For these patients, you can have them take ferrous sulfate, 325 milligram tablet, over-the-counter, starting once a day and working up to three times a day. You can also recommend taking a 250 milligram vitamin C tablet or half a glass of orange juice to increase absorption. Iron should ideally be taken on an empty stomach to enhance absorption, but this causes some patients to have GI upset, nausea, and vomiting. Starting with a smaller dose and working up from there may help ease these symptoms. These patients will still need primary care follow-up, but they will feel better faster if you start them on iron therapy for their microcytic anemia. Now let's talk about how to make decisions about transfusions in anemic patients. If patients are actively bleeding with unstable vital signs, then, in general, they should be transfused regardless of their actual hemoglobin level. Hemoglobin levels may not adequately reflect blood volumes for up to 24 hours after an acute bleeding event, even if it's severe. A patient who drops their hemoglobin by several points in between blood samples a few hours apart is significantly bleeding and should be transfused. For unstable patients, don't hesitate to order emergency release type O blood for immediate transfusion. You can also consider using a blood warmer or rapid infuser device to speed the rate of transfusion and provide warming for the blood. If the patient is awake and alert, verbally consent the patient as to the risks and benefits of transfusion in this emergency situation. When you talk to the patient about these risks, you have to disclose the very rare chance of catching an infectious disease such as hepatitis C or HIV. 
but the chance of that is about one in a million. More common reactions include a blood transfusion reaction or volume overload. Patients may also develop a fever from the transfusion itself that is not related to infection. However, put this in context that these risks are rare and mild compared to bleeding to death. The choice of resuscitating with fresh frozen plasma, in addition to packed red blood cells, is beyond the scope of this episode, so I'll leave that to others. Now let's focus on the much more common patient, one that is hemodynamically stable with a hemoglobin at or below 7. Numerous studies in many different patient groups have shown that unless you are unstable and actively bleeding, your transfusion threshold should be 7. We used to routinely transfuse all patients to hemoglobins of 10, but not anymore. There have been demonstrated harms of increased morbidity and mortality when transfusion thresholds of 9 are used. This includes ICU patients, patients with sepsis, and those with upper GI bleeding who are hemodynamically stable. The two caveats to this threshold of 7 are patients with active heart disease, meaning those patients having active myocardial ischemia or an ST elevation MI, or those patients who are severely symptomatic. Some patients may not be able to tolerate a hemoglobin of 7 without large burden of symptoms, so they can be considered for transfusion. Keep in mind that many patients with end-stage renal disease on dialysis routinely live at a hemoglobin of about 9. For those patients who are less than 7 but are hemodynamically stable, they will need admission for transfusion and more workup. A type and screen should be ordered from the ED, which will tell you the patient's blood type and screen for antibodies. Usually units have to be cross-matched prior to transfusion, so order a type and crossed based on the anticipated number of units that the patient will need. In general, a unit of blood will raise the patient's hemoglobin by one point. So if the patient has a hemoglobin of 5, you will need at least 2 units to get it to about 7. So order 2 units to type and cross to help out your consultants. Keep in mind that a cross-matched unit usually means that it's assigned to that patient until it's canceled. In general, that unit will be thrown out after 3 days if it's not used. So be sure to call your blood bank and cancel the cross-match if you eventually decide not to use the blood. If you are able to, it is also very helpful to consent the patient for the transfusion while they are still in the ED. However, don't feel the need to actually start the transfusion in the ED, as this is very time and labor intensive. The patient likely bled down to a low hemoglobin over the course of many weeks to months, so it does not need to be corrected rapidly. You will probably do nothing but cause harm if you slam in a bunch of packed red blood cells. In fact, that's a good rule in general for medicine. Things that happen quickly need to be fixed quickly, while things that happen slowly should be fixed slowly. If you want to help out your inpatient team, you can start ordering standard anemia workup labs from the ED and have your inpatient team follow them up. Most institutions have a standard iron panel, but if they don't, order a serum iron level, a TIBC, transferrin, and ferritin levels. You also want to order a tick count, peripheral blood smear, and possibly a direct and indirect Coombs test. You can also consider ordering LDH and haptoglobin, as this may help diagnose a hemoglobinemia. Before we move on, let's review anemia in the ED. Some patients will present after an abnormal outpatient lab, while others will have nonspecific symptoms like fatigue, dyspnea, or chest pain, while for some patients their mild anemia will be an incidental finding. Patients may be tachycardic, have pallor of the conjunctiva or skin, and may have a flow murmur with severe anemia. Ask patients about possible sources of bleeding to include blood in the stool or urine, heavy menstrual periods, or recent surgeries or GI procedures. The first step in determining a possible source of anemia is to look at the MCV. In general, 
a low or normal MCV represents iron deficiency anemia or anemia of chronic disease, while high MCV is likely from nutritional deficiencies, alcoholism, or liver disease. In those patients with incidentally discovered anemias that are mild and asymptomatic, routine primary care follow-up is appropriate and required. Make sure to write the diagnosis of anemia on your discharge paperwork and on your chart. Younger females with heavy periods and iron deficiency anemia may benefit from starting iron. You can tell them to take ferrous sulfate, 325 milligrams, over-the-counter, starting once a day, working up to three times per day as tolerated. It's best to take on an empty stomach with either a vitamin C supplement or some orange juice. Most stable patients will not need transfusion until they reach a hemoglobin of 7, unless they have severe symptoms of anemia or they're having active myocardial ischemia or infarction. Unstable patients should be given immediate emergency release blood. If the patient is unstable but awake, verbally consent them for the risks and benefits of transfusion to include the rare possibility of infection, but more commonly mild transfusion reactions. For stable patients who need transfusion, be sure to do a written consent, and if you can, help out your admitting team by doing it in the ED before they're admitted. You can also consider sending an iron panel or tick count, peripheral smear, direct and indirect Coombs test, LDH, and haptoglobin to get those labs started for your inpatient team. You don't necessarily need to start transfusing the patient in the ED since it's very labor-intensive, but having all of those other things done will be a big help to your consultants. Now let's talk about hemophilias and von Willebrand's disease in the ED. These are generally not diseases you'll be diagnosing for the first time in the ED, but we need to know how to treat these patients when they arrive with bleeding complications. While most adults will know that they have the diagnosis, in rare cases, children may present to the ED with their first episode of severe bleeding and not have this diagnosis already made. You should suspect hemophilia in any child with a family history of bleeding disorders or those patients with spontaneous or excessive bleeding out of proportion from the trauma that was sustained. The two most common hemophilias are hemophilia A, which is a deficiency of factor 8, and hemophilia B, which is a deficiency of factor 9. Hemophilia A is the most common form of hemophilia in the U.S. Since it is X-linked inheritance, the vast majority of patients are males, and females are asymptomatic carriers. Some patients have severe disease with less than 1% activity of their respective factors and may bleed spontaneously, while those with higher activity levels will bleed after minor trauma. These patients may have severe bleeding from nothing more than a bad ankle sprain. As far as the lab workup in these patients, their prothrombin time, or PT, will be normal, but their activated prothrombin time, or APTT, should be prolonged unless the hemophilia is mild with 30-40% to 40% factor activity. These patients can bleed from just about anywhere, but intracranial bleeding is the most common cause of hemorrhagic death in all age groups, so have an extremely low threshold to do a non-contrast head CT in those with even minor or trivial trauma or any sort of headache. Patients with back pain should be investigated with an MRI to look for epidural hematoma. Any abdominal pain should prompt CT scanning as well, since these patients are at high risk for retroperitoneal bleeding, including bleeding into the iliopsoas muscle. These patients may seem to have relatively minor complaints, but all their concerns should be taken very seriously, and your worker should be aggressive in tracking down a possible source of bleeding. In those patients whom you find a source of bleeding, it is very important to replace the patient's factors in a timely fashion. Any bleeding other than a superficial laceration will need factor replacement. 
Even deep, simple lacerations can have bleeding controlled with direct pressure and application of topical thrombin. However, once you get beyond simple lacerations and talk about bleeding into deep muscle groups or joints, then the patient will need factor replacement. The exact amount of factor to replace depends on what system is involved, and this is something that you can look up or talk with your hemon consultant about. In general, except for bleeding into the GI tract or the central nervous system, you will want to increase the patient's factor activity up to around 50%. For bleeds into the GI tract or CNS, you will replace the patient up to 100% activity. The patient should know their baseline factor activity, and this will be needed to calculate how much more you need to boost it in order to get to a desired level. You will want to look this formula up, but it seems to be low-hanging fruit on most exams. So to correct factor 8, you will take the target activity level, subtracted from the patient's baseline activity level, and divide it by two times the patient's weight in kilograms. For factor 9, it's slightly different. You'll do the same calculation, except dividing it by the weight in patient's kilograms without doubling it like you did for factor 8. I'll put this formula in the show notes, so don't memorize it, but it's good to know that you have to adjust the dosing of the factors based on the patient's weight, desired factor activity level, and the patient's baseline factor activity level. As far as disposition, patients with minor bleeds to the joints, soft tissue, or oral nasal mucosa can go home after receiving factor replacement. Some patients even self-administer this at home and never come to the ED. Patients with bleeding just about anywhere else should be admitted for monitoring and continued factor replacement. Now let's talk about von Willebrand's disease. If you recall back to first year medical school, von Willebrand's factor assists with platelet binding. Most patients have a deficiency in the amount of circulating von Willebrand's factor, while fewer patients have an abnormal function of von Willebrand's factor, and rare cases have almost zero circulating factor. Most patients will have recurrent epistaxis or gingival bleeding. Patients can also have unusual bruising, GI bleeding, or menorrhagia in young women. The treatment here is usually pretty simple. Intranasal desmopressin is usually very effective in helping platelets aggregate and helping the patient form a clot. For children, one spray in either nostril is sufficient, and for adults, it's one spray in each nostril. These patients need to be fluid-restricted for 24 hours after the desmopressin to avoid hyponatremia. For more severe cases, or those that are known not to respond to desmopressin, the patient may need transfusion with either cryoprecipitate or factor VIII. There's a lot of controversy in this area in regards to the best transfusion therapy, so talk with your hemoc consultant if you get this far. For this last section, let's talk about the purpose, ITP and TTP. ITP stands for idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura, is an autoimmune process that results in rapid destruction of platelets. ITP can be caused by autoimmune diseases themselves, but it can also be caused by infections or certain medications. In these patients, you will see a purpura or petechiae, which are purplish rashes that do not blanch when you apply pressure. Petechiae refers to a punctate purplish rash 1 to 2 millimeters in diameter, whereas purpura is just larger petechiae that tends to form blotches. These patients usually notice the petechiae or purpura first, but they may also have minor bleeding of the gingiva. Menstruating females may also complain of menorrhagia. These patients should have a normal CBC except for their platelet count. Some patients may have a mild anemia, but all of their RBC indices should be normal. The disposition of these patients depends heavily on the severity of their thrombocytopenia. Patients who don't have any signs of bleeding 
and have a point of account above 50,000, don't need any specific treatment, and can be followed up as an outpatient. Patients with platelet counts below 30,000 or those with platelet counts below 50,000 who are actively bleeding will need admission for treatment and workup. For children, asymptomatic patients are okay for discharge at 30,000 instead of 50,000 for adults. In regards to medications that cause ITP, there are many, but the most common ones to look out for are heparin, sulfa drugs, and chronic ethanol use. Other medications that have a weaker association with ITP are aspirin, rifampin, and penicillins, with a very low incidence as compared to heparin. Treatment for these patients is usually started with prednisone, 60 mg PO for an adult. If the bleeding is severe or the platelet count is severely low, most would say under 10,000, then you can consider starting IVIG at 1 gram per kilogram per day. In general, you do not want to transfuse platelets routinely because the patient's autoimmune process will just chew them up. In general, only give platelets for life-threatening bleeding, and even then, you will want to wait until you get an IV dose of steroids on board to help reduce platelet destruction. Some sources recommend up to a gram of solumedrol, aka methylprednisolone, IV, but you should do this in consultation with your hemon consultants. Finally, let's talk about TTP, or thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. This is a much more serious disease than ITP and will require us to coordinate lots of care for the patient. The diagnosis of TTP has been simplified to lower the threshold for diagnosis. Essentially, any patient who has microangiopathic hemolytic anemia with thrombocytopenia is TTP until proven otherwise. Microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, or MAHA for short, is identified by seeing red blood cell fragments or schistocytes in the blood smear. The vastly simplified explanation for the mechanism of TTP is that microthrombi are formed throughout the body as a result of a dysfunctional protein called ADAMS13. This protein is responsible for mopping up von Willebrand factor, and when it doesn't, it causes microclots. Once again, that's an extremely simplified explanation, and far from complete because, well, that mechanism just doesn't matter too much in the ED. What does matter is making the diagnosis, so for TTP, the mnemonic that everyone knows and loves, with my apologies to the nurses out there who are listening, is FAT-RN. This stands for fever, anemia, thrombocytopenia, renal dysfunction, and neurodysfunction. However, patients rarely have all five features at the same time, or ever, so don't let a lack of any of these findings persuade you from the workup if you have a patient who is anemic with thrombocytopenia. Left untreated, the mortality rate of TTP can be as high as 80%. In addition to the risk factors for ITP, such as infection, autoimmune diseases, and medications, pregnant patients are at higher risk for this disease as well. For these patients, you need to get them plasma exchange therapy, aka plasmapheresis, as soon as possible. This is where the patient's entire plasma volume or more is replaced by a machine that is similar in concept to a dialysis machine. If there's going to be a significant delay in getting the patient plasmapheresis, then you can give the patient fresh frozen plasma as a temporizing measure. Avoid platelet transfusions except in cases of life-threatening bleeding or intracranial hemorrhage. The bottom line is that you need to be cautious about picking up this disease. Remember anemia with schistocytes and thrombocytopenia is TTP until proven otherwise, so really take a look at that CBC when you find an anemia and thrombocytopenia and ask yourself if this could possibly be TTP. If you have any concern, make sure to order the blood smear.
to look for those schistocytes that may not be obvious on that initial CBC. Before we go, let's do a quick review of hemophilias, von Willebrand disease, ITP, and TTP. Hemophilia A is a deficiency of factor 8. Hemophilia B is factor 9. Most patients will know that they have this disease and know a lot about it, but it's still possible to make a new diagnosis in children with severe bleeding or bruising out of proportion to the traumatic mechanism. As far as the coagulation panel, PT will be normal, while APTT will be prolonged, unless the patient has a mild hemophilia with at least 30% factor activity. Just about any trauma to any area of the body, especially the head and trunk, should prompt aggressive imaging with CT to look for intracranial bleeds, which are the most deadly, as well as bleeding in the abdomen or retroperitoneum. Get an MRI if the patient has back pain, as this could be epidural hematoma. Any bleeding more than a superficial abrasion or laceration will need factor replacement. For most bleeding, including bleeding into joints, replacement to 50% of factor activity will be enough, but bump it to 100% replacement for GI tract bleeding and any bleeding into the CNS. The patient should know their baseline factor activity, and you use this along with a formula to appropriately correct the patient's factor levels. Unless the patient has minor joint, soft tissue, or dental bleeding, they should be admitted for continued factor replacement. Von Willebrand's disease is a lack of, or dysfunction of, the Von Willebrand's factor, which is responsible for platelet aggregation. Most patients have recurrent gingival bleeding or epistaxis, but bad bruising is also possible. Intranasal desmopressin, one spray for kids and two sprays for adults, will treat most instances of bleeding. Make sure to fluid restrict the patient for 24 hours to avoid hyponatremia from the desmopressin. For severe bleeding, the patients will need either cryoprecipitate or factor VIII replacement, both of which contain von Willebrand factor. Patients with an ITP present with thrombocytopenia and a non-blanching purplish petechial rash, or purpura, without any other major symptoms. This is caused by infections, autoimmune diseases, or certain medications. The most common medication cause of ITP is heparin, sulfa drugs, and chronic ethanol use, but aspirin and penicillins can cause it as well. In ITP, the CBC should be normal, except for a low platelet count and perhaps a mild anemia if bleeding is significant, but their RBC indices should be normal. Patients with platelet counts over 50,000 adults and 30,000 in kids who are not actively bleeding don't need specific treatment. Adults with platelet counts under 30,000 or those with counts below 50,000 who are actively bleeding should be admitted for treatment and further workup. First-line treatment is steroids. 60 mg of prednisone PO daily is usually enough for adults. If the platelet count is below 10,000, then most texts recommend starting IVIG at 1 gram per kilogram per day. If you must transfuse platelets for life-threatening bleeding, get steroids on board first, otherwise the process causing platelet destruction will chew them up. TTP is a much more serious disease than ITP. The rash is generally the same as seen in ITP. In any patient with microangiopathic hemolytic anemia with thrombocytopenia is TTP until proven otherwise. What you will see is a patient with anemia with schistocytes in their blood smear in conjunction with a low platelet count. The classic mnemonic is FAT-RN, which stands for fever, anemia, thrombocytopenia, renal failure, and neurodysfunction. However, most patients don't have all five features, and they rarely display them all at the same time. These patients need plasmapheresis to replace their entire plasma volume as soon as possible. If plasmapheresis will be delayed, then giving the patient fresh frozen plasma can be a temporizing measure. 
Just like ITP, don't give platelets except for life-threatening bleeding. Any patient who is anemic with thrombocytopenia should prompt you to consider the diagnosis of TTP. So get that blood smear to look for schistocytes to seal the diagnosis. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I know it was a long one, but it's a very broad topic. Let me just take a moment to thank our bandwidth sponsor, EB Medicine. The recent September issue of Pediatric Gam Practice discussed hemophilia and von Willebrand's disease in children, so it's a perfect resource to learn even more about those topics. Also check out the October issue of EM Practice on delirium in the emergency department, which is something that we deal with a lot in our aging population. As always, EM residents can get free access at ebmedicine.net slash embasic, and attendings can get discounts at the same address. That's it for today. Feel free to email me at steve at embasic.org. And if you have a second, drop a review on iTunes to help spread the word even more about the podcast and tell your classmates and colleagues if you like what you hear. Till next time, Steve Carroll for EM Basic. Stay classy.